through. So let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for a beautiful morning you've granted to us and for your house that we can come out and study your word and be challenged from it. I pray that you would guide our discussions, guide our class, and thank you so much for your son who died to redeem us, took our place on the cross. Thank you for the eternal life that we have and for the relationship we have with you. And I pray that you teach us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're working through the officers and organization of the church. And uh, as we've been making our way down, we've worked through the qualifications for the elder, which is the pastor of the church. And let's turn to um, Titus chapter 1. Titus is one of the pastoral epistles. And it was written by Paul to two young men. Titus and Timothy were written by Paul to two young men who are his replacements. He's going to be passing off the scene very shortly. And he's got two men that are going to take his place, Titus and Timothy. And he writes these letters in order to help them in their ministry. And he says in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained in the order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What was Titus's job in Crete to appoint elders in the towns? What, what are the elders? They're the leaders of the church. So Titus was left there under the direction of Paul to organize the church in Crete. And how do you pick out who should be elders? If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and we already talked about that. And his children are believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This is an interesting one here. Some say that in order for a pastor to be a pastor, his children must be believers and not open to, what's it say here, um, debauchery or insubordination. In other words, pastor's family is to be controlled. And so there are some places you go where if the pastor has a son that turns out to take a left turn, he's no longer able to be pastor. Because the question is, if you can't raise your own children, what makes you believe you can raise children in the church? There are some that believe that. Um, others say no, what this is referring to, the word for child here is young person who is still in the home. So the question then is, is the pastor leading his home correctly? In other words, it's not that the kids are perfect, right? But when the kids are out of line, what does the pastor do? He disciplines his children. He has an orderly home. I sort of lean towards that there. I, I don't think you would disqualify a person from being a pastor if he had one child that turned out to be a black sheep in spite of the best raising he could give him. Because all of you know, no matter what you do, sometimes you have one kid that just wants to turn right, don't you? I mean, everybody's going right, he's going left. All right, that's just the way it is. So I don't think that's what it is. But I think what Paul is trying to get at here is that when you look at the pastor's home, it needs to be a home of stability. There needs to be, he needs to be modeling at home what he should be modeling in the church. Why? Because you lead by example. You don't lead by dictate, you lead by example. And that's the real difference with church leadership. Secular leadership, you lead by having the position. You lead by being named to that position. In the church, you lead by example. And if your example is shot, you can't be a leader in the church, is what I think this is saying. And then it talks about here, um, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. We talk about all those 
character qualities. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So what do you see here? You see the three words I used to refer to an elder, right? Lead, feed, and weed. He's to rebuke those who are unruly. People don't like that. They want the pastor to be, you know, lovey-dovey and never um, point out the error. Well, listen, part of your job is a part of your job as a parent. As a parent, what do you to do with your kids? You're to lead them. You're to correct them, right? That's part of it. That's part of your job. That's part of your task as a parent. If you fail at that, you failed. You need to lead your children. You need to feed your children the right kind of stuff. And you need to, every once in a while, yank a weed out. That's just part of being a parent. But what we see is a constant picture, a consistent picture between Titus and Timothy about the character of a person who is to be the elder, the pastor, the overseer of the church. And it's all about character. It's all about who he is inside. It's, and when you look at a pastor, when we look at a, for example, we're looking at a person to be part of the pastoral staff at Church of the Open Door. One of the things we do is we go down through this list of qualifications with all of them. They, they have to run the gauntlet, so to speak. We call references. We call people they work with. Um, in the case of Jim Minling, I don't know if you knew this, but we called the um, Board of Commerce from where he was because he was doing things in the public arena. So we called the head of the, the what is it, the local chamber of commerce and said, tell us about Jim Minling. We, we checked him out. You know, it takes, it's a little bit of effort to get in here. Why? Because they're to be a model to everybody else. And what, this is one of the things to understand. When you look at this, you say, wow, man, I'm glad I don't have to do that. Well, now, wait a minute. This is to model this is the model of what it should be. What should we all aspire to? Yeah, the same character qualities. All right. Don't. But well, this is what we aspire up to. Not, not everybody can meet this high standard. And here's the point. If you have low standards in leadership, what's going to happen to the people? They're going to be even lower. Right? You can't, in fact, I, I love what somebody said. He said, you can't raise people any higher than you are. All right. So if you if you if you're here, you can't raise your people higher. You always got to be one step ahead, so to speak. You got to be one up on them, and it's a lot of hard work to do that. But the office of an elder pastor is an honorable office. It's something that that is a good thing. But there's a lot of responsibility to it. Let's now look at the qualification for a deacon. What is a deacon? A deacon is one who raises the dust. This is a, one who serves in the church. And the main difference between a deacon and an elder is an elder teaches the scripture. They are the ones that lead the church. A deacon serves in the church. Now, where did deacon come from? Well, it comes from Acts chapter 6. What happened in Acts 6? Well, you had a problem arise because the widows were not being ministered to correctly in the church. And in those days, what happened is people would bring their offerings, they bring their resources to the church, and the church would take care of their own. And one of the ways in which a church really did that in those days is take care of the widows. Why is that? Well, they didn't have social security, they didn't have food stamps, they didn't have any of that stuff. So as a widow, you were pretty much at the mercy of society. And one of the ways in which the early church operated is they would care for the widows 
in the church. You see this, by the way, in Titus chapter 5, where Paul gives the qualifications for putting a woman on the role of the church. What's that? On the role of being ministered to by the church. All right? Um, so they were having a problem, and, and the elders of the church, who were the apostles, says, you know, it's not right for us to abandon the ministry of the word, the teaching, the preaching, the proclamation of the word, and go serve on table. So let's do this. Let's get some men who are of good report, have character qualities that are godly, and let's give them the task of doing that so we can devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so that's what they did. They innovated. And of course, they chose seven men. We know a couple of them, Stephen, right? Mm -hmm. Stephen was one of those seven deacons. And their job was to oversee the distribution of the food for the widows. Now, understand something here when we're talking about this. It's not like, and this, this, this is something that we have a tough time understanding because of our culture. It's not like there's a pecking order within the church. That's not the point, is it? The point is, what has God gifted each member to do? Right? What has God gifted Jim Mendling to do in our church? Preach. All right, if he was spending 40 hours a week trying to organize the outreach of the church, would he be preaching? No, you can't do that. It's not that there's one person that's more important than the other. That's not even the point. It's the point is that God has gifted all of us in different ways to do different things. And so what we need to do is we need to do those things that God has, and we've talked about this before, that God has gifted us to do, that God has uniquely qualified us to do. And that's what we need to focus on. We can't do everything. I can't do everything in this church. I can't. I can only do so much. I can't do everything. And over the years, as I've told you before, I've had a lot of pressure from people. Oh, you need to be an EE. Oh, you need to be doing this. Oh, you need to be doing that. No, I don't need to be doing all of that. We've got a thousand people in this church, and a lot of them need to be doing that. If you're not doing something, you need to be doing something. But I've, I've been called to do something in the order of teaching and, and all that. That's what I should be focusing on. And I can't do that if I'm trying to do this, 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 this. And, you know, we have a good way of doing that in the church. We shame people into doing things, right? Oh, good night. You know, we need somebody to do this. I know. We'll get so-and-so to do that. Well, so-and-so's doing 20 things already. Um, I was listening to a great uh, uh, series from the Master's Seminary done by John Street. John Street is the head of their counseling department out there. And uh, from Dayton, Ohio, by the way, originally from Dayton. And he was talking about, um, about marriage counseling in the church and all of that. And one of the things he said is that in their church, the elders, in the, in the context, he said, if you're on the elder board, you're only allowed to serve in one other ministry. Because if you don't, you're not giving time to your family. And um, I think there's wisdom to that. Yeah, there's wisdom to that. That's, that's in his, his church he came from. If you're, you, you can do two things in the church, but you can't do three. Unless you're single. If you're single, you can do more. But he didn't want married couples to be so involved in the church that they never saw each other at home. There's some wisdom to that. And I've been in a trap sometimes where I'm doing so many things in the church, I'm never at home. I don't want to do that. You know, so I've tried to make it I'm not worked at it all the time. Donna can tell you it's not always succeeded, but, you know, I wanted to have at least a couple evenings a week that I'm not involved in church stuff. Because if not, what can you do? You can be involved every, every day. I remember, you know, a few years ago, they wanted me to be in the church play. Well, there, I, I avoided that with a, I wouldn't touch that with an 800-foot pole. 
All right. I'm not going to give up every weekend, every every weeknight from November to December for some stupid play. I'm sorry if you really like to play. That's I'm sorry about that, but I'm not going to do that. All right. I mean, if somebody else wants to do that, that's fine. But I can't do that and teach Sunday school and do Moody and I can't do it all. All right. Some people, you know, and if you want to do that and, and, and bang through five weeks where you're doing that, that's okay. But I can't do that and teach Sunday school and teach the Moody class and live. I mean, I can't do all of it, you know. So you've got to decide what to do. And that's part of the wisdom of being in a church, church leadership, or even serving in a church. Don't go doing so much that you don't do anything right. Find out where God has gifted you. Find out the niche that he's made for you and plug that niche and do that task. Whatever that task is, do it. But if you, in this case as a church leader, if you avoid your family, if you don't take care of your family, you fail. You can be the greatest preacher on the planet. If your kids are drug addicts, you fail. You failed as a, as a leader. How can you lead the church if your kids are on drugs? I'm speaking in generalities. I'm speaking in generalities. The, the point I'm trying to make is if, if you have a pastor who all of his kids are debauched or, you know, they're teenage monsters, that's different. Yeah. You're always going to have, you can always have one or two that go off a different way. Chuck Swindoll did. Little Chuck, his, his youngest son, he had some trouble with. You know, Billy Graham did. Now, Franklin, I think, came back to the fold. But, you know, there was a time when... Franklin. So, so you have those instances. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you have a pastor, and I know a pastor in the area whose son was, you know, married out of, you know, had kids out of wedlock, and his, he has three granddaughters, and all of them have kids out of wedlock and all that, and he's still preaching. And it's like, there's something wrong with this picture. All right, there's something wrong here. All right, how can you hold the church to a standard of of morality that your own family fails at. You, got, you, you can't do that. And when you talk about the area of deacon, technically the deacon has qualifications that are pretty similar to that of the elder. I mean, there's not much difference other than the deacon doesn't technically have the gift of, minister, of ministering the word. You're more of a servant in the church. And by the way, let me, let me make a suggestion. All of us, everybody in the church could be a deacon, Right? Everybody could be a deacon. You don't need to have an official deacon title. What is a deacon? Deacon is one who raises the dust. Deacon is the one who serves in the church. In fact, at John MacArthur's church, you can't serve in any ministry unless you qualify as a deacon or deaconess. You cannot, you cannot be a Sunday school teacher unless you qualify as a deacon or a deaconess. You can't. Because that's the qualifications for service in the church. Yeah. James 1.27 supports that. Yeah. Wild. And to keep oneself unspotted or undefiled from the world. So what are some of these qualifications? Well, the key passage is 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And um, it says uh, here, he must be grave, a deacon, likewise the deacon. Now, when you see the word likewise here, and we're going to talk about this later today when we start talking about your favorite topic, women in the church. The word likewise there means in the same manner that I'm commanding the elders, now I'm commanding deacons. Likewise, in the same manner as. And Paul uses this actually I think four or five times. 
in 1 Timothy 2 and 3. And what he's saying, just as I have commanded the elders to be a particular character quality, likewise the deacons are to have these, these character qualities. I'm commanding them in the same way that I'm commanding the elders. And what you see in, in verse 8 here, deacons likewise must be dignified. What does it mean to be dignified? Well, grave. Serious. Above reproach. I personally have a problem with someone who is the, the church clown. You know what I mean? They're always laughing. They never take anything seriously. They're always cutting up. That, that to me is a sign of spiritual immaturity. I'll be honest with you. It doesn't mean you can't have fun. You can't tell a joke. But you, you know what I'm trying to get at. You ever have somebody that's always joking and just nothing's ever serious? Well, this is a serious task that we're up to and we need to be serious about it. We can't be joking all of the time. We need to be grave. That, you know, gravitas, we use that word gravitas. What does that mean? Serious, sober, clear thinking. You want someone, who, you want a leader who is clear thinking. Do you want somebody leading you that's always cutting up and nothing that's ever serious, just a big clown? Do you want that kind of person to be leading you? Well, no, not unless you're part of the clown group at the circus, you know. But in a serious thing, you don't want somebody who's a clown. You don't want somebody who, who doesn't take life seriously. And that denotes a certain maturity level, doesn't it? There's a certain maturity level that is required here. He said the, the deacons must be great. They need to be held in high respect. People need to have a respect for them. That's one of the questions to ask. Generally, does this person, do people respect him? In the case of a deaconess, do they respect her? Is there a respect there? Do they see that person, do they take that person seriously? And that's one of the qualifications. And that, by the way, is just the same thing like for an elder to be grave. All right? And then he must not be double-tongued. What does that mean? Speak, yeah, white man speaking with forked tongue. Uh, the idea there is that you're not a gossip. Now, by the way, this is one of the, this is one of the I think, the greatest sins we all participate in. And we do it, and we don't think we're doing it, do we? We're doing it under the guise of praying for people. Look, you need to keep your mouth shut. That's one, that's one thing that I think all of us could learn a little bit better, do a little bit better. Keep our mouths shut about certain things. It's also, isn't it, being two-faced? Yeah, or saying one thing to one person and another thing to somebody else. Yeah, integrity. I think an idea here is integrity. Are you a person of your word? Do you say, when you're in the, and when you're in the company of these people, do you say one thing and then you totally switch your tune when you're in company, different company? How do you, how's your speech? Can you, can you trust this person? Are, is they, are they a person of their word? I mean, I've, again, I've, I think I mentioned before, I've had... You know, I've seen deacons who come in at open door in, the, in times past and say, yeah, I'll be a deacon. I'll, I'll serve for three years. Then two years in, they, God's leading them somewhere else. No, God's not leading them somewhere else. They're, they're breaking their word. If God was leading them somewhere else, they would be relocating to another part of the country or they'd be dead. God does not have you make a commitment then change your mind halfway through. You, you need to keep your word and, and you need to 
be a person of integrity and, and mean what you say and say what you mean and, and to not just blah, 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 blah. Do you, want, do you want to confide in someone who is one of the chief nodes on the church grapevine? No, because it hits all over the place, right? You don't want to do that. You want someone who's a person of integrity. He must not be given over to wine. What does it mean to be given over to wine? Drunk. doesn't say you can't drink it, right? Now, there are some Baptists that say, well, it doesn't mean... Now, wait. What's Paul saying? He's saying not given to wine. You're not... You're not allowing wine to control you. Now, in our culture, is it a bright thing as a church leader to drink alcohol? No, it really isn't. It really isn't. I would strongly encourage anybody in church ministry not to drink alcohol because it's a, it's a significantly negative thing in our society. It's viewed negatively. Other cultures, it doesn't, it's not that way. In our culture is a very negative thing. If the pastor walks into the room with a Stroh's light in his hand, you know, people have trouble with that. Even the pagans have trouble with that. So let's not go there. Let's, let's take the high road and let's just not drink at all. That, that's the best way to do it. But the point here is that it's not prohibited. You understand the difference? It's not prohibited, but it's probably not bright in our society. There's a lot of things that technically you can do but are just not wise to do. I mean, if you're trying to lead people and be a model and example, there are certain things that you just need to not do as a leader. That's just part of it. Being wise. You know, you just, God gives you that wisdom. So I would say in, in our society, abstinence is the best policy. But what Paul is trying to make a point of here is that the church leader, whether he's an elder or a deacon or a deaconess, they're not given over to alcohol. They're not out of control. And I would extend that to drugs as well. I mean, if you have a pastor who's on cocaine, you've got a problem. Or who smokes weed, you've got a problem. Um, he must not be greedy. Why is that? Why should you not be greedy? Yeah, well, if you're greedy, what does money do? It colors your what? Yeah, it corrupts you. It colors your judgment. Folks, we really need to, we really need to get, get on to this. Look at these boys on TBN. What's their problem? They're greedy. What has their greed done? It's corrupted them. You're telling me with a straight face that you can be a minister of, the God, of God or... Uh, uh, supposedly a, a worker in God's kingdom and have your own private jet that you fly all over the country in? I can't imagine Jesus with his own private jet. I don't know about you. It makes, all Christians look bad. makes us look bad, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Or you have a doghouse with gold on it or some air-conditioned doghouse there. That's a new one. <laughs> yeah, that was Jim Baker. He had an air-conditioned doghouse and gold-plated... Um, fixtures in the bathroom. I mean, there's something wrong with this picture. What did Paul say? There's some that suppose godliness is great gain. Folks, all of our gold and all of our wealth and all of our riches is not for this world. It's for the next. If you've got somebody who's always greedy for money, is always looking for the buck, always looking to, to try and get his step up in the world, it's going to color his judgment. So, in the church, for example, in the leadership, if you got Mr. Big Donor and all the leaders are worried about money, what are they going to do with Mr. Big Donor? They're not going to step on the foot. You know, they're going to... Kiss the butt. 
yeah, they're going to go around it. They're not going to deal with issues. Now, if you're Mr. Little Donor, they'll, they'll, they'll pound you. But if you're Mr. Big Donor, they leave you alone. And what's that? Your judgment is clouded because you're worried about money. Don't go there. And speaking of that, I've heard people who play the lottery, I don't, but people who say things like, if I win, I'll give a huge amount to my church. <clears throat> Can I make a suggestion and say, if you, sp if you spend money on the lottery, shame on you. Shame on you. I've never spent a dollar on the lottery in my life. And I won't. Shame on you if you're on the lottery. That, that, is, that is one of the most horrid things you can do. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Sammy. Yeah, I We're on that. I mean, that, that is... What, what is that? What, what, what is the lottery... What is that whole industry based on? What, greed. You've got an industry based on greed. Somebody said, well, I'm going to go have fun, you know, go down to the casino and have fun. You know, it's like going to the ball game. Wait a minute. You're contributing to an industry that only exists because people are greedy. If people weren't greedy, you wouldn't have gambling. Why in the world are you going to contribute God's money, which, by the way, is all the money you have is God's money, right? Why are you going to dump that on a lottery ticket or down at the casino? You have no business doing that. Somebody else has played the lottery and they bring it to the church. Should it really be accepted is my question. Ooh, that's a good one. You want my opinion? Yeah. If I know it's coming. No, no. If I, if I knew. For, when we take offerings here, we don't know where you guys get your money. I mean, we don't, right? I mean, we don't, we don't have a... It's supposed to come from your... Yeah, we, we don't have some kind of... Uh, you know, some kind of questionnaire you fill out. Okay, now where did you get this money? Did you really work for it? You didn't steal it from your grandma, did you? I mean, we, we don't do that. But um, if I was the pastor of a church and somebody hit the lottery and wanted to donate a million dollars to the church, I would refuse it. I'd say no. I Give it somewhere else, but not here. And that's if you knew that that's... If I knew... Well, now, of course, if somebody, if Toothless Bob, what is that guy that hit the lottery? What's his name? He's got missing, he had a picture, he had, he had like three teeth missing. So, I, I think his name, he won the Powerball, $238 million, you know. You know, if he came walking in the church giving a million dollars, I'd wonder where he got it, right? I mean, because, you know, he doesn't have that kind of money. So I could be tipped off that probably he got it from the Powerball. Um, I, I, that, that's, a person, that's a thing of conscience, but I would have trouble accepting that. Just as I would have trouble if somebody came in, like Al Capone came in and said, I'm going to give you your church a million dollars. Now, wait a minute. I know where Al gets his money. All right. Um, I, 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 I would have to refuse that personally, but that's just me. But I, I think, and by the way, I think most of the, I think most of the people on the church leadership here would feel the same way. I don't know that. I can't speak for them, but... But you're not to be greedy. You must hold the mystery of the faith in a good conscience. What does that mean? You must know the scripture. I mean, there's... Now, that doesn't mean you're a theologian. That's not what it's talking about here. But you should know the basics, right? 
If you're going to serve in the church, you should know the basics of the Christian faith. You should at least know the fundamentals of the faith. There should be some level of spiritual maturity that you have. And the idea of hold there is to protect. It's not just to have it, it's to defend it, to protect it. Part, part of the thing that we don't want to do today, we don't want to defend the word. We want everybody to, you know, you can believe whatever you want, just, you know, it's okay. Wait a minute, there are certain essential fundamentals of the faith, and we've talked about them here in the class, that once you jettison those, you're, you're not a Christian. They're not up for grabs. They're not up for discussion. You can't, you can't nix the deity of Christ and, and call yourself a Christian. You can't nix the blood atonement. You can, cannot say, I don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, or things like that. Those are essentials of the faith. You can't, and you need to know those. And you need to hold those not only for yourself, but you need to be able to defend them and not give them up in order to get along with a greater number of people. That's one of the greater problems. See, what we want to do is we want to, we want to create a, as big a sheepfold as we can. Well, the problem is if you're creating a big sheepfold, what also gets in along with the sheep? Wolves. A lot of wolves. Yep. It's not my job to expand the sheepfold. It's my job to make sure whoever's in the sheepfold is a sheep. All right? And you do that by going back to the fundamentals of the faith. What is the critical doctrines of the church? What do we need to believe? He must maintain a pure conscience. What does that mean? Live a godly life. It doesn't mean he's blameless. It doesn't mean he never sins. But he needs to live a pure life. There needs to be a level of purity and integrity and godliness about him. Because if not, you've disqualified yourself as church leadership. He must be tested and proven. What does it mean to be tested and proven? How do you test and prove somebody? Call in the Chamber of Commerce. Call the Chamber of Commerce. And also check them out. You know? Have a track record. You know, if somebody's been in your church for four or five years and they've exhibited character and godliness and grown in the faith, that's what you're looking at. You're looking for someone with proven track record. Yeah. It's over a period of time. It's looking at the person over a period of time. They need to be proven. This is especially true for elders. You need to be proven. At John MacArthur's church, you can be a pastor and not an elder. You can have the office of a pastor doing shepherding work, but not an elder yet. Why? Because you're still 25 years old. And in his church, they, they say, you, you know, you need to be around 30, 35, you know, before they consider you for elder. Why? Is there some magical thing about that? Well, no, but if you're 30, you're 35 years old, you've been in the church for 15, 20 years, what have you proven? A track record. And by the way, that standard might be different for different churches, right? If you're a brand new church, you don't have 20 years of history to deal with. So you do the best you can. But if you've been around for 100 years or something like that, and you've, you, the standard can be different, right? It, it all depends on where you're at. He must be blameless. It goes back to the same thing with the elder, right? Yeah, I like Deacon so-and-so, but boy, he's got a bad temper. Well, he's not qualified to be a deacon until he gets that temper under control. Must be level-headed. Needs to be level-headed. Needs to be, you know, again, what do you want in leadership? You want somebody who's even-keeled, not someone who's all over the place. Level-headed. He needs to be blameless. The husband of one wife, again, this is the one-woman man. 
How's he to treat his wife as the only one on the, in his interest? Don't make fun of her. Don't make fun of her. Right. Yeah, that's a big one. Don't make fun of her. Respect. Yeah, show, you, you can tell if a man respects his wife, can't you? You can look at him and say, you know, he respects her. He treats her with dignity. He, he, he brags about her. That's the other thing. You brag about, you have people who brag about their wife, how great she is. Yeah. Uh, I, it, it just occurred to me as we were talking about that, that God, the perfect father, one third of his kids went awry, yeah. the angels. So in a typical household, you're going to have about one third of the kids who just choose to follow Satan. Mm. Yeah, it, and again, that, that, what you want to look for there, and, and by the way, we've discussed this on our church life board. You know, like, what do you do, with a, what do, you do if a, one of our pastors has a child who goes left? What do you do? Well, we have to look back and say, you know, has he done his part to raise his child right? And if he has, and that child takes a left turn, you can't fault him. See, one of the problems is we have this concept that, well, if the child doesn't turn out right, it's the parent's fault. Well, not necessarily. It's, it's possible, right? It's possible. But not necessarily. You can, as a parent, you can do everything right and still have a child go left, right? You choose to. Yeah. So you've got to look at that. You know I'm talking about the angels, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then the last one here, manage their own homes and households as well. Well, what does that mean? To manage the home. Is the home a place of stability? Or is that person's home a... Chaos, confusion. Is seeing his wife always fighting, or the kids always running around? Is you know, there's some level of orderliness to that. Now I'm going to step on somebody's foot right here, but I think when you go to the pastor's home or the home of a deacon, you should see a fairly orderly house. What do you mean by that? Well, the lawn should be mowed, right? If you go over to the pastor's house and he has weeds all over the place and the gutters are falling down. You go inside and there's, you know, it's, it looks like a tornado hit the inside. What's that tell you about the person? Not disciplined. That's a no-brainer, isn't it? Somebody say, well, how, how dare I? You know, so, well, now wait a minute, all right? Wait a minute. I'm not talking about a spotless house, right? There's a difference between a spotless house, you know, a, a showplace home, and a home that has, a, has order to it. Yeah, you go, when you walk into the pastor's house and there's holes in the wall and the chandelier's falling down and there's garbage all over the place and half-eaten food laying around, there's something wrong. He's not disciplined in that regard. You need to be disciplined. And you, right. And by the way, what did God leave Abraham or Adam in charge of in the garden? To tend it, right? What's the idea of tending? Keeping things in order. Keeping things in order, right? And again, it doesn't mean that your house is a showplace home. That's not the point here. That's not the point here. But you know, all of you know there's a couple of people in your life that you just dread going over to their home because you don't know what alien life form is growing there. <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. They might be the nicest people on the planet, but they're not qualified. 
That's, that's just practical, folks. It's just, it's just you know, if, 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 if the person comes in and they're, they're, they're just not disciplined. There, there's something about that. And again, if you have a lot of little, you know what it's like, parents. If you have a lot of little kids running around, your home is not a showplace house. Sometimes you've got to, like, close the door to their room because there's chaos in there. That's, all, that's different. That's different than just a filthy house or houses in complete disarray. And I also would say this, this goes, manage their own homes. It goes to the financial area as well. I think it impinges on that. If you go to somebody's, if you know somebody who's in debt up to their eyeballs and they can't manage their finances and can't manage their, their home, wait a minute, why are you letting them manage the church? That's a that's disaster. You got to be able to manage your own home, and I think that's what Paul is trying to get at here. All right. So that's the office of a deacon. Now, what about the office of a deaconess? Well, the key passage is First Timothy three eleven because it says likewise the women, and some translation says well likewise the wives. In the same way. Well, now wait a minute. Why would there be qualification on the wife of a deacon but not the elder? Right? Follow him? Yeah. Why, why does he say, likewise the women? All right. In verse 11, likewise the women. By the way, there's not a Greek word for wife. The word there is woman. So likewise, the women must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. I think you can make the argument, and I, I, I would agree with this, that he's talking about deaconesses. By the way, Phoebe was a deaconess, Romans 16.1. In what sense was Phoebe a deaconess? Well, she took the letter of Romans to Rome from Corinth, where Paul wrote it. She took the letter over there. All right, so she was a servant in the church. Do you have women servants in the church? Well, of course you do. Of course. There's nothing prohibiting women serving in the church as in the, or in the office of a deacon, just like a deaconess or a deacon. And by the way, deacon is a, is a neuter word. There's no feminine or masculine point to that. It's just servant. And what are the, what's the character of the women deacons? Deaconesses, well, they need to be serious as well. Same qualifications for the most part. They need to be serious, not slanderers. What does that mean? Well, what is the great temptation for women to do when they all get together? Gossip. Gossip. See, you did, I didn't even have to tell you that. You, 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 got, you nailed yourself on that. I didn't have to accuse you of that. We know that, right? I mean, it's just, that's just, well, how's your kids? How's your, blah, blah, blah. That's just, that's the way women are wired. And it's saying if you're a deaconess, you need to be careful not to be a slander. You need to learn to keep your mouth shut, to be grave, to be serious. Temperate, what does that mean? Even keeled. Calming. A calming influence. And faithful in all things. Being faithful. And by the way, later on in Titus, he also gives some other qualifications for the women. They're not to be given to wine. They're not to be alcoholics. Those who teach in the church. We're going to go through that exegetically here in our next section. But women, the women in the church, they're to have the same serious qualifications. What, what, what's the 20,000-foot picture here? The 20,000-foot picture here is that the, the, the people who serve in the church, they serve based on their character. 
what kind of people they are. And the, and the standard is high. It's a high standard. Why is it a high standard? Because your people are not going to rise any higher than the leadership. You've got a leadership with low standards, that's where, the, that's where the, everybody's going to land. You need high standards. It's a serious thing to be in a place of leadership in the church. Now let's look at um, your favorite topic. Yeah, uh-oh. I've sort of been dreading this, but you know, it, it's part of the top. Yeah, that's one of the things here. You've got to get through it, so you might, we might as well talk about it. I'm joking with you, I hope. I hope I'm not burned in effigy and uh, tarred and feathered here. I don't have notes on this yet. I'll, I'll have them next week. Um, I didn't know how far I would get. I got 20 minutes to start this, and I can run for the exit. Um, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be that bad. All right. Let's, let's look at this topic. Let's look at the topic of the, the role of women in the church. All right. Yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll track me down. They know where I work. All right. We know where you work. Yeah. By the way, um, this material is taken from a paper I have out on my website called Women in the Church. If you go to theopenword.org under topical studies, there is a paper that I've written on this. It's 20 pages long or something. But uh, this is where this information comes from. Yeah. Here's the three significant points when we talk about this, this concept. This is just, uh, we're just going to introduce the topic this week. Then next week, I would suggest you read 1 Timothy 2 and read Titus 2. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 2. Those are the two passages we're going to be going through verse by verse, okay. all right, to, to work through this. Um, some other passages would be 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. All right, we'll talk about those two passages as well. They're, they're, they're coming later, but the two main ones are the Titus and the Timothy passage. First Timothy 2 and Titus 2 for Right, mm-hmm, yeah. May 2nd. Yeah. And come with your questions. A um, couple of th- three points here. It's, it's th- we're not talking here about essential orthodoxy kind of things. Understand that. This is not an essential of the faith. In other words, you can go to a church where a woman is a pastor and you can get to heaven. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, so it, this is not something to split necessarily over orthodox wise. All right? it's not, it, we're not talking about value or worth. That's, that's not the concept here. A lot of people immediately go to that and that's where the world usually lands on this thing. They say, well, what you're doing is you're saying women are inferior. No, that is not what is being said at all. That's not even hinted. In fact, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that, does, is there? As far as God is concerned, men and women are equal spiritually before him. Is that not right? We all, we all come the same way by the way of the cross. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no distinctions drawn as far as spiritual privilege before the Lord. It has nothing to do with that. We're talking about role here. We're not, we're not talking about value, worth. We're not talking about um, abilities. We're not even talking about giftedness. We're not talking about any of that stuff. This is, about, this is purely about the role that, that women would have within the local congregation. And I think by extension within the home as well. I think both of those sort of go together. But it is a watershed issue. What do I mean by that? It is important. It's not critical, but it's important. It's very important. And uh, I'll go on a limb here and, and say that 
that um, I would not be able to be part of a church that had women elders or a woman pastor. I would not be able to be part of that church. I wouldn't call down the fire of God's judgment on them or anything like that, but I could not be part of that church because it's a, I think it's a very important principle scripturally, and we're going to go through that, all right? And you're going to have to come on your own conclusions. But I think as you look at the text of scripture, I do think it is an important thing. But it's not orthodox important. You understand the difference, what I'm trying to get at here. All right? Yeah. Yeah, they got two hands up at the same time. Yeah. And it's hard for them to fill their role when women don't do theirs. So it, both have to look at themselves. It's both. It, it, because we talk about women. Yeah. And I'm not saying this to you. I'm saying, I know how I have felt in the past. It's like, what do you mean? You know? But really, it's more. You make, a, you make an ex extremely important point, and that is both are at fault in, in here. A lot of times, men do not step up to the plate and do what they're called to do. And women fill that void. That's a shame on the men. Shame on men. All right. But what we have to do here individually, we have to ask ourselves, what has God called us to do? All right. And, and one of the things that, that we need to be careful of is we can't say, well, I'm allowed to break the rule because they're breaking the rule. You understand what I mean? You understand what I'm trying to get at? I'm allowed to do what I'm not, I shouldn't be doing because they're not doing what they should be doing. No, God's called us to do a certain thing. We are personally culpable before him. And we need to make sure that regardless of what other people do, we're doing. It's like, it's like in a marriage. It's, it's, I can't say, well, I'm going to treat my wife well if she treats me well. But if she doesn't treat me well, then I'm allowed to not treat her well. Well, what kind of idiocy is that, right? What am I called to do? Whether she treats me well or not, I'm called to treat her well, right? I'm called to do what I'm supposed to do. And, and the Bible calls us to that kind of level of accountability before God. Ruth, you were... But then look at the kind of ministry she has now. And see, that, that's really the, the, the other side of this. And I know we're getting on a little rabbit trail here, but okay. don't worry, it'll all come together, all gel. But there are women that say, well, I have the gift of teaching, preaching, or whatever. Well, there is a forum to exercise that. You're going to see that in Titus chapter 2. In fact, there's a forum that only you can fulfill as a woman that men cannot. And the problem is women are running from that to something else, and that leaves a vacuum where they're most needed. All right? There is a forum for that in the church, and we're going to talk about that. So just because we say women are not to teach, we're not saying women are not to teach, period. That's not at all what is being said. There's a forum for that. 
All right, and we're going to work through that, okay? So please be patient. We'll, we'll get through it. Yeah, and it's not, and also I do think there's another general, generality we can make there, generality. Generally, which one of the sexes is most easily deceived? Generally. Generally. I'm not talking about every woman in the planet, but generally. Just more susceptible to being deceived. It depends on the topic. It depends on the topic, but you look at spiritually, and I, I will make the argument, spiritually women are most easily deceived. Both of us are, easy, are deceived. But, but, but I'm talking generalities. You understand that? Generalities, generalities. And Paul makes that point. Now the problem is the man knew what he was doing. He was more culpable than the woman. The woman was deceived. The man knew what he was doing. All right? Yeah, and we're going to talk about we're going to talk about this, okay? So let's we'll get through it, okay? It comes from the way God has wired us. That's that's the point. Right. Yeah. Where did, where did Islam come from? It didn't come from Muhammad. It came from his wife. You know that? Yeah. Yeah. Where do you think Armstrong started from? Armstrongism? It wasn't him. It was his wife. How about Christian science? A lot of the major cults. I'm not saying all of them, but, but many of them have an influence behind them. And then you look at TBN. What gender finances TBN? Women finance TBN. All right. I'm just saying generally. I don't want to. You know, we don't, we don't want to get in a fight here. But generally, not in all cases, but generally, women are more easily deceived spiritually than men are. Generally. But let's let's yeah. Let's 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 go on with with our with this here. We'll we'll, we'll get through it. We're gonna we're we're gonna get all of this stuff. So let's ask the question. Okay. When we look at the role of women in ch church, we're going to study that. How, how, what is the role of women in all of Scripture? Let's look at the role of women and, and how they played a role within the Scripture. And we're going to start with the Old Testament. How are women seen in the Old Testament? Well, when you look at the Old Testament, which covers about 4,000 years of history, right? No women in the Old Testament ever led in corporate public worship. You don't find any account of a woman leading corporately in worship. All right? It doesn't mean women did not worship God. That's not what it's saying, right? But it's saying when it comes to the corporate assembly, when it comes to offering a sacrifice, when it comes to leading in worship, there's no instance anywhere in the Old Testament of a woman leading in public worship. It's not there. Not even Deborah did, okay? God chose Aaron and his sons as priests, not Aaron and his sons and daughters as priests. Aaron and his sons were chosen to be the priests of Israel. So when God established 
the old covenant established the sacrificial system, the male gender was the ones that were to lead in the sacrifices and in the worship of Israel. No woman ever offered a sacrifice to God or led her family in worship. You don't see that. Not anywhere in the Old Testament, it's, it's not there. Okay? So the woman, when it, when it comes to corporate worship, and it doesn't mean individual. We're not talking about individual worship. We're talking about corporate worship. The leadership of your family or the leadership of the community. No woman ever served in the Old Testament in the role of leader in that instance. Anywhere. It, there, it's not there. Okay? There was no continuing office of a prophetess in the Old Testament. Now, you had a lot of prophets, didn't you? We know all the prophets, you know, Elijah, and, I mean, you can lead on and on and on and on. But there's no, and notice what I said here, no continuing office of a prophetess. You did not have a school of prophetesses, okay? It is not there. Now, there were five women in the Old Testament that were called prophetesses. Five. All right? And we need to ask ourselves, well, wait a minute. If you're saying there's no continuing office of a prophetess, why then does it talk about five prophetesses? Well, let's look at the context of these five women that were called prophetess. Miriam was called a prophetess in, one, in Exodus 15. Why? Why was she called a prophetess? Well, she sang the song of deliverance, didn't she? All right? Remember when God drowned the Egyptian army and she sang the song of deliverance? She, in that case, was called a prophetess. And why was she called a prophetess? Because she was proclaiming something about God. By the way, here's the understanding of what a prophet, what is a prophet? A prophet is a proclaimer, a, someone who proclaims something about God. So in that sense, in that one occasion where she led, she had a song and she played this song, she was called a prophetess, but she was never considered in the Old Testament to have an office of a prophetess. It doesn't say that she came back the next day and did the same thing. It was on one occasion, at one time, in an isolated incident, she sang a song, The Deliverance. And in that instance, she was called a prophetess because later on, what did both her and Aaron do with Moses? They tried to usurp leadership, right? And what did God do? He struck them with leprosy. The point is, Miriam was never considered a prophetess. On one occasion, she did say something. She did lead in the worship there, but she did not have a continuing office of a prophetess. Deborah was called a prophetess in Judges 4.4 because she was one in the dark days of Israel's apostasy. God looked all over Israel, and guess which? He didn't have any men to do anything. All right, So Deborah did that. All right. On one occasion, she is called a prophetess. But was she the civil leader? No, she wasn't. Who was, the, who was the one who ran the army? Who was the one who led the army? Barak, right? So she was called a prophetess in the sense that she spoke some things for God. But she was probably the closest thing, if you want to make an argument, she was the closest thing you would ever get to having a prophetess in the Old Testament. But then the context is you look at the nation that, at that time, and what do you know about the time of the judges? Was Israel spiritually up or spiritually down? They were spiritually negative. <laughs> I mean, it was really bad. So that, that's an isolated... She did not serve, by the way, she did not serve in the capacity of worship, did she? 
Does it say she offered sacrifices and led Israel in worship? And No, she didn't do that. And she did not lead Israel in battle. It was Barak that did that. All right, what about uh, the other ones? Well, Huldah, another lady, was called a prophetess because she spoke a prophecy regarding Jerusalem and Jer Judah on one occasion. On one occasion, she said something about Judah and Jerusalem, and it calls her a prophetess in the sense that she spoke something there. But by the way, that's the only mention of her all the way through the entire Old Testament. One occasion, isolated incident, she did say something. And if you understand prophetess to refer to somebody speaking something about God, it would, it would be okay. But there's no continuing office of a prophetess. Noadiah was a false prophetess who spoke against Nehemiah in Nehemiah 6.14. She was a false one, so she doesn't, she's a bad example. All right. And then the other one was Isaiah's wife. And why was she called a prophetess? Because she bore three children with prophetic names. Remember? In Isaiah chapter 1 and 2, she bore children and their names had prophetic significance. So she was called a prophetess in the sense that she was associated with Isaiah the prophet. All right? Here's the point. 4,000 years of history in the Old Testament from the time of Adam all the way through, you have five isolated incidents where there's any inkling of a woman being called a prophetess. In all cases, she was not leading in public worship. She was not leading in the civil authority or anything like that. Rather, on one occasion, she said something about God, about truth, but in no case did she ever have a continuing office of a prophetess. Whereas you have hundreds of examples of men who were prophets in the Old Testament. You did have the continuing office of a prophet, but not prophetess. All right? Um, and that's what this is saying here. That there was no continuing office of a prophetess. On three occasions, God did speak through women. He did. But in 4,000 years of history, you got three isolated examples. There are only two examples of female leadership in Israel. One was Deborah, who was a co-leader sort of with Barak. The other was Athaliah. You remember her? She was the granddaughter of Jezebel, and she tried to wipe out the royal line. She was a wicked queen. She tried to destroy the messianic line. And only one was saved. One child was saved to perpetuate the messianic line. Here's the point. There's just no evidence in the Old Testament that you had women in continuing offices of leadership. It's not there. No women, no women prophetesses, no women priests, no women leading in worship. And when you look at the New Testament, it's not any different. Um, there's no continuing office in the New Testament of a prophetess. You don't see it in the New Testament. By the way, you don't see it in church history. Except for one example, which is the, I think it's the Marcionites. Who, it was a heretical group that came about. They're like the early charismatic, word-faith kind of group. And uh, they had two prophetesses who were giving prophetic utterances. They were an heretical group. But when you look at the New Testament, there's no prophetesses, continuing office of a prophetess in the New Testament. Now, Anna was called a prophetess because of what? In what sense was she a prophetess? Remember Anna in the temple? She saw baby Jesus. It doesn't say that she was in the temple preaching. It doesn't say anything. She was a prophetess in a sense that she was awaiting the Messiah. That's it. You have um, 
Some say, well, the seven daughters of Philip were prophetesses. It talks about them. They prophesied. Well, what does the, broadly, what does the term prophesy mean in the New Testament? Broadly. They proclaim or preach. If Philip's daughters witnessed to their friends, what were they, in a sense? Proclaiming. Proclaiming. So they were prophetesses in that sense. But it doesn't say they were deacons. It doesn't say they were deaconesses. It doesn't say they were elders. It doesn't say they were church leaders. It just said that they spoke about God. And there's, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. God, you know, say, well, I'm a woman. I'm not allowed to tell anybody about Jesus. Don't go down that route. That's not what it's talking about here. That's not what we're talking about. They were not listed as official witness teachers, and apparently they were just witnesses. By the way, Philip was one of the seven deacons, right? So he was an evangelist. Philip was an evangelist, wasn't he? So what did his daughters apparently do along with dad? Evangelize. There's nothing wrong with that. doesn't mean that they were leaders in the church. It doesn't mean that they were elders in the church. There's no example in the New Testament of a woman elder, pastor, or officer. They're not there. You have a lot of men who were elders, right? Pastors. No women. No women are ever listed in that sense. Now some say, well, what about Priscilla and Aquila? Well, what did, who did Priscilla and Aquila teach? Apollos, right? But did Priscilla take Apollos by his side and teach him? No, who taught Apollos? Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife. It doesn't say that Priscilla was a teacher. It doesn't say Priscilla was the one who discipled Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila discipled Apollos. Both of them did it. And by the way, there's, there's, that's, that's very much needed. You, in a church, it's nice to have a couples that can minister to people, right? There's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly fine and valid. No woman preached a message or taught publicly in the New Testament. Do you have any examples of that? No, they're not there. No women apostles or evangelists. Any woman apostle? No. Any woman evangelist in the sense of like a, a Philip? Now, Philip's daughters, you know, they, they witnessed, but they were not, they did not have the office of an evangelist. They did not have the itinerant office of going around evangelizing. And there were no female disciples. How many disciples did Christ have? Twelve. No women. Now, I read a paper by a group that said, well, the reason that Christ did not have any female disciples is because he was catering to the patriarchal mood of his age. Now, if there's anything you know about Jesus, you know what? Did he cater to anybody? That's nonsense. He had no favorites. By the way, that comes out of Gilbert Bilizekian, who is behind Willow Creek. Bill Hybels, all right? That is nonsense. If, if, if it was valid to have a woman disciple, who do you think would have had a woman disciple? Jesus. He, would, he bucked the trend. And by the way, how did Jesus treat women? He elevated them way up. I mean, he elevated women far beyond what, what the rest of the culture did. I mean, they're, they're, don't, don't go to Jesus and say he had something against women. That's not the case. In fact, who's the first... Who did he peer to first? A woman. It's role, that's it. All we're talking about here is role, but we're making the case here, and I've got to do this, 
Because people say, well, I, I believe in women pastors. They say, well, where is one in the New Testament? It's not there. Where's the office of a prophetess? It's not there. It doesn't say women shut up and didn't say anything about Jesus. That's not what it's saying. Women were, were witnesses of Christ. But when we talk about the role, the leadership role, the elder role, the, the apostles, the disciples, the leadership, you don't find women in that role, R-O-L-E, role. It has nothing to do with their value. And we'll have to stop there because yeah. we're out of time. Yeah. So, But um, next week, hopefully, we'll wrap most of this up. But again, I urge you, read those passages carefully. 1 Timothy 2, Titus 2. And you're going to find far from women not having a role in the church. They have a very important role that only they can fill. And, and one of the great failings in the churches today is that women aren't doing what God's really called them to do. And it's causing problems in the church. So let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this day and for granting it to us. And pray that you would help us to ponder these things. And thank you for your word that that teaches us and guides us. And we just thank you for all that you've done in Christ's name. Amen.